Here's, here's what we're doing. Quickly take this. You're going to pass it back. You know, you're going to filter it to John. John's going to be somewhere. Don't put your name on it. We're not going to you know, haze people. Oh, you got zero. You got seven. We're not, we're not doing that. But just do your best to describe the answers. If you don't know it, you don't know it. It's fine. Just, just take it. Go ahead. you're done, raise it up. Great. So we'll, we'll, we'll be coming back to why that's important, and you'll see very quickly. So our topic tonight, we have been through to political and anti-homosexual last week. Um, tonight, we are discussing the ideas of arrogance and fundamentalists. So lots of good fun tonight. Um, so let me go ahead and start with a word of prayer, and then we'll, we'll get, jump into it. Um, Father, we thank you, um, God, that you are here. Lord, I thank you for just what we've been learning in this um, series. God, I pray that it would open our eyes to the things that we do that sometimes we don't think about um, a lot of the negative things that your church and that we as your church are a part of. Um, God, so I pray that you would um, give us your spirit. I pray for deep humility on, on my part, on all of our part, God, because it's something that I know um, we all struggle with, Lord, so we pray this in your name. Amen. Okay, great. So the first half, we are going to start off with arrogance. So the, th the f ones we feel like this really falls under are the insensitivity to others and non-respecting of other faiths. So those came up at insensitive to 70% and non-respecting at 64%. So you have those five basic questions from other religions. And so what I wanted to see was just how well this group would be able to do with some very basic level questions from other religions to see you know, how, how much we know about others. Because one of the big things with the church is arrogant. So I put up this verse, John 14, 6, which is a highly quoted one. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. So this is a verse that we believe in and that many non-Christian will, will very much say that this is an arrogant thing. This is an, an exclusive claim to salvation, to, you know, we are the right religion, you are the wrong religion, this arrogant claim. And so, of course, the question is, okay, so what do we do about that? Because ultimately, I think Jesus does make some exclusive claims. I do believe that. I do believe that a lot of the other religions, when you get into them, are also exclusive. So we'll kind of talk about that. So what I want to do is first, before we, we jump into arrogance, is why we're arrogant. Why do you think, does anyone have any just off the hand, you know, what's your good? Why, why are we so arrogant? Or why do others claim that we are arrogant at least? Can you even make a claim saying, you know, like Jesus is the only way? Is, is, is it automatically arrogant? Is there no way to even have humility? It doesn't have to be arrogant. It's just obviously you're not going to choose to believe in a religion unless you feel that it is correct. I think for many Christians, not definitely all, like with many Christians, it's presented even on top of that verse, that they won't, they won't even consider the beliefs or the ideas of other Because of that. Yeah, like it's like, well, I won't even bother looking at it, but I expect you to look at my religion. Okay, so there, there might be some reverse stereotype as well. Okay, I think, I think that's fair. Any other thoughts? Yeah. It's the way um, people present it. Ah, that's what I wanted to hear. <laughs> well, because there's this, I don't think those words that Jesus meant was a way to, it wasn't a power struggle. I don't think Jesus' words were like a way to be like, screw you guys, I'm the way. But yet, when Christians talk to other people, it's like, it's not very relational, it's very dominating. Good. So I want to say why, this is one of the thoughts that I think why we are this way. So I want to do a really, really, really brief overview of the history of the church. And so Jesus and disciples, obviously, sometime his ministry is sometime around 27 to 30. We won't get into, you know, could be off a couple years, doesn't matter. Um, the early church begins after Jesus' death, after his resurrection appearance to the disciples, and goes to about 312. Now, this early church is going to be, one, it's a slow expansion as Paul gets converted, goes on missionary journeys, those sort of things. But as a majority, the church is rather small, or it's in small little pockets. So even as it's spreading, you know, you have you know, some smaller communities kind of gathering together bit by bit. Sometimes it's underground. You have to remember it's highly persecuted. If you think about Nero and his persecutions happening in around, around about 64, um, and a lot of the uh, he takes the the bulk of the um, blame for that, but that's a continual thing. 
by other Roman emperors. You know, the, the Christian claims they decided not to go to festivals. They did some things that really butted heads with the rulers. They also had this wonderful claim that Jesus is Lord. Guess what all of the Roman emperors are saying? Like Nero was Lord or Augustine was Lord. So, so that butts heads right away, right? So you have a highly persecuted, small, mobile type of church. They're at the margins of society and they thrived. You have pictures of Acts, um, you know, at Pentecost, you have thousands coming to faith right on a single day. You have that on numerous occasions when you look at the book of Acts and the following decades and, and even centuries where hundreds and thousands are coming to faith. So, but the key idea I want to make is that as far as culturally speaking, the church is at the margins. The church is not the, the domineering voice in any way. Rome is. Rome's the one crucifying. Rome's the one domineering everyone else. Now, Constantine's conversion is what shapes and changes this. So there's a, uh, you know, who knows his conversion story? Anyone offhand? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Just before he goes to capture Rome in the West, he has a vision. Oh, yeah. You know, puts the emblem on his shield and marches into Rome and begins to, after he, he Rome basically surrenders and then he takes it as a sign of his. Okay. But he's not really, I thought he wasn't really a Christian. Right. So some people argue maybe he was never even Christian. Maybe he wasn't. It's too uh, hypothetical to really say, you know, is someone a Christian or is someone not? But there's good argument that maybe he never even converted. But either way, the story goes, you know, he sees the cross, puts it on the shields like Jeremy said, and then claims, he attributes that to Jesus. Okay. So whether he's doing that for political reasons, religious, both, who really knows? But the Edict of Milan in 313 legalizes Christianity. So that's the first major step. So you go from persecuted to legalized religion. Now you're going to see a steady increase by the time Theodosius, he makes Christianity official in 380. So in a matter of, you know, from 312 to 380, so in a matter of 68 or so years, you have a persecuted church to an officially legalized church to 529 that I have here, baptisms even become compulsory. So you have a steady movement from totally on the outskirts to the middle of culture to a dominating political force where politics and religion are the same. Christianity and culture is the same. So by the 7th century, um, some scholars are saying that by this time, culture and Christianity, totally synonymous. It's the same. You are assumed to be Christian. There's no decision here. It's you're born, you're Christian. That's the way it is. Okay. And so do you see how that... It, in a lot of ways, this hurts our faith, right? Because there's no choice. Or people aren't really Christian, but, but they're assumed to be Christian, right? I mean, there, there's no say in this. There's no belief. There's, there's a dominance where, where it even reverses where non-Christians could be persecuted. Um, so it's assumed. It's dominant. It's an, in an arrogant position. The church and state is married, which means kings could, po could appoint bishops, and, and then what basically the church would legitimate rulers, the rulers would finance churches and then be the enforcers, right? So you have this marriage of church and state. So in one sense, you have lots of people becoming Christians because they're raised that way, right? And in one sense, you have lots of people who aren't really Christian, who are dominated or forced to become quote-unquote Christian. Okay. These lead evils such as you know, different various inquisitions, crusades, those are always fun to bring up. Um, the Reformation. Now the interesting thing about the Reformation is they too had a deep marriage of church and state. So you have a split between the Catholic and what you know, we are as evangelicals coming from the Protestant Reformation in 1517, but there's still that marriage of church and state. There were some minority groups in the Reformation such as like Mennonites, Quakers, Others who really wanted the Reformation to go further, they didn't like the marriage of church and state. They said it's not right that our kings could, could appoint our bishops at our church. That's, that's not good. So you have some, but that's by far the vast minority. And so the case I'm trying to build here is the fact that now over, th over you know, 1,500 years or so, you have a dominating church that is arrogant, that is, we are the voice of truth, we are the way it is. There's no choice in Christianity, right? Now, we look at culture today. Guess what? That's not the case at all. We're in a vastly different place today than the Reformation periods. Enlightenment, scientific revolution, uh, the basis of religious freedom, which is way more the foundation of America 
it's a lot of people think America is a Christian nation. Well, I don't think so. <laughs> uh, they have more deistic roots. But the one basis for sure is the religious development of, of freedom that you can choose. And so this is completely different than church dominance. And so you have this battle because, yes, our nation is still highly Christian. Uh, Barna has it at, I think, 77% we're going to look at later. And so you have a tension here. But I make the case that churches are now beginning, especially now, are beginning to be at the margins. People don't as often look to the church as the voice, as the right. What does the church have to say this? Because what they say is we'll go with that. Now, of course, people in the church do to some extent. But people outside, that's not the case. Does that make sense? Any questions, thoughts? This is a super fast brief overview. I know that. but Okay. It's, it's one voice among, among many. That's where I truly believe the church is right now. We are one voice among many. Um, so, good old arrogance. Here's our cultural fun stuff. We haven't figured that out. <laughs> I'm making the case that I believe the church is at the margins, and I believe that most of the Christians don't know it. So we got the fun, good old arrogance, dumb shirts that say, we all do dumb things. Going to hell doesn't have to be one of them. And on the back, it's friends don't let friends go to hell. Ah, good fun. So this is the stuff that screams arrogance. It's not really possible to have a conversation with that, right? Or is it just me that thinks that? Because apparently these are selling a lot and people think this is a great way to share faith. This is a great way to, to proclaim the truth. I mean, it's pretty absurdly obvious. Yeah, no kidding. It stands out. So here's are some of these. We're going to look at a couple claims of other people when they see shirts, when they see Christians being dominant. You know, why are they calling us arrogant? Well, there's, of course, good reason. And at the same time, I think a lot of Christians aren't. So, I mean, it's... It's a back and forth. Um, so here's one of the big problems is we do claim to some level exclusivity. I really do think that John 14, 6, I don't think it's a, um, like Ange Angela said, it's not a domineering thing. But I do believe Jesus is saying, I am the way to the Father that through me you can have relationship with God. And that he seems to be saying that I'm the only way. So, but the problem, one of the big problems is not that we stick to something that we believe is true. Because ultimately, like Monique said, other people, if you put your faith, okay, I'm, I'm in part of the Jewish faith or the Islam or, or whatever faith you choose, you're ultimately saying you believe this is correct, right? I mean, that, that's a pretty basic fundamental thing when you say, I believe, da-da-da-da-da. Um, the problem is, though, that they have naivety about other religions. So it seems, this is a quote from, from the book that uh, one of the guys that Dan Kimball interviews. He says, it seems they have programmed dogmatic answers that someone has told them and they can't even hold any type of normal back-and-forth conversation about other spiritual beliefs but theirs. Okay? This person, and this is, of course, just one person, Dan Kimball argues, but I think this is a good showing of a lot of at least stereotypes or at least things that people think about Christians that, you know, they won't even carry a conversation. Is that true? Is that fair? Is that a wrong claim that they're saying? Or is this somewhat true and to what level? I'm not sure some of them can even hold a conversation about their own. <laughs> <laughs> that, that may also, well, well, that's even the program dogmatic answers, right? You've got to admit that in a lot of churches, is, you know, what the pastor says is the way it is. It's almost like we have bunches of mini popes, right? You've got your mini pope who is your pastor, and, you know, whatever he says is correct or she says, and, and that's the only way it is, right? And so it's programmed and dogmatic. So that's, that's one claim, is that we don't know much about other religions. Now, we're going to wait also to get our... The reason we did this is to see, how much do we know? <laughs> how much does this group know? And because I put in some very basic, do we have some results? Here's the total. Here's the total. I was very liberal. <laughs> <laughs> very liberal, he says. points whenever possible. Okay. Okay, so let's so see what type of, okay. So the total point, even in this room, now this room considers themselves intelligent, right? And maybe smart about other religions. John has this at, we knew 30% of our answers. Now, here are the questions, just to repeat them so people online can hear. What are the five, what are the five pillars of Islam? What, um, how does one enter into heaven according to Islam? Oh, also in the first question, what, what begins the Islamic calendar? What is, um, when did it come about? Number three was, what is the major event in Judaism uh, that's celebrated by the Passover? So it's like the, the central event in the Old Testament. Describe karma and to which religions do they belong? And then number five was, um, what is the ultimate purpose of Buddhism? So here are the answers. Let, let's, let's clear them up so I can just say them to everyone. We got 30%. So we seem to fall under argument number one. Here are the five pillars of Islam. First is the profession of faith. 
It's to say there is one true God named Allah, and Muhammad is his messenger. Number two is uh, the zakah. Is it zakah, I want to say? Um, I'm horrible pronunciation. But it's a tax. It's a, um, it's a tax that is given to the poor. So it is written in that they would give a certain percentage. It's going to be different based on Shiism and, and um, Sunniism. It, it'll depend. But there is a prescribed tax given to the poor. Another is the pilgrimage to Mecca. So this is hoped to be done at least once in your lifetime, as many as you can, but, but the hope is that you would do this once in your lifetime. Uh, another is, what's that? Yes, the five-time prayer. And so there, at different times, you have morning, before noon, noon, afternoon, and evening. So you have five. Uh, and, and in uh, you know, the Islamic states, they, they actually sound like a gong or, or some sort of bell that, that signals to everyone to go pray together. And the fifth is fasting during the month of Ramadan. So these are your five basic pillars of Islam. Now the beginning of the religion is 622, well, it can, 7th century is the correct answer. If you're in the 7th century, early 600s, Muhammad gets his first um, vision, I believe, in 610. He has a second following one, and they claim 622 is the beginning of the Islamic calendar. So something that's very early in the 7th century. Okay, number three. Now, we are Christians, and we should know what is the central event of Judaism because we come from, from the Judeo-Christian background. So who's got it for me? That's it. The Exodus. The Exodus, right. So the Exodus. That is the central event of the Old Testament for Judaism. So the Exodus through the Red Sea. Karma. Karma is basically a system of cause and effect where everything that's caused, it's, it's actually, it has some parallels to our faith with, you know, what you reap, you sow, correct? Karma, it's a little bit more strongly tied in. It's going to be very different based on different religious expressions. And then the two religions that I had on here for you that you needed to circle was Hinduism and Buddhism. So it's actually a part of both. Some sects of both don't, don't do karma. So if you do good things, you will get a better rebirth. And if you don't, that, that's kind of the karma principle. Good. Um, and then fifth is what is the ultimate, ultimate purpose of Buddhism is to reach nirvana which is kind of like, it's, it's not necessarily a heaven state. It's, it's a very difficult state of enlightenment. It's to get out of all suffering. Buddhism, a big strong theme in Buddhism is the suffering that's here and the release from that suffering. Okay? So as you can see, these are, very five, these are five very basic doctrines. These are not, uh, you know, takes years of study to learn these things. And the fact of the matter is this room only got 30%. So we seem to fall in line with not having a general understanding of other religions. Is that fair to say? So we need to work on that. Second argument. We fail to see commonalities and truth in other religions. This is a big one. Um, I think this is big in the sense that most religions have some sort of the golden rule. Jesus says to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And what's the second command that's like it? Love your neighbor as yourself. Guess what? Most other religions have some sort of version. Now, you may claim that they take it from Jesus. Either way, truth is truth, right? So if the Buddha or some other religious text says to love your neighbor as yourself or some form of it, that's good. That's holy. That's, that's God's truth. And if we don't learn to recognize that in other religions, that's arrogant. I think that's very arrogant. We, they also have emphasized moral ideals. Peace, patience, love, mercy, justice. All those sort of elements, you find them in all of these major religions. I mean, it's, it's rare. I mean, yes, okay, you have like the Satanist, whatever you want to call religions. Okay, maybe they don't have those virtues. But most religions do. And so we also need to affirm the fact that, that this is good. This is truth. Peace is a good thing, right? Third, um, this is another reason why we're going to be called arrogant. We live in a pluralistic culture where Christianity, again, is no longer the center of culture. Now, in Christian, right now in America, our religious diversity is 76.5, but it's a 9.7 decline, oops, sorry, uh, decline from 1990 to 2001. So these stats are in 2001, so it's probably even different now. 14.1% have no religion, 1% Jewish, and 0.5% Muslim. There are about 20 other religions that are you know, 0.3 and 0.2 and 0.1. Um, actually, according to, this is all according to the Barna Research Group. Um, according to them as well, Wiccan, which is a type of witchcraft, is actually the highest, the, the fastest increasing religion in America right now. So you can see, and, and I thought this was really good, this last one. If this trend continues, this 9.7% decline, by 2042 there will be more non-Christians than 
Christian members in the U.S. So my point, again, is that we are one of many voices. And two, we do have a pluralistic culture that wants to say we can all, you know, you can have different faiths and we can all be correct. And so there is a sense of relativism. There is a sense of, and this isn't everyone. This is, a, this is definitely a sweeping general overview. So don't, I don't want to say that everyone believes that. But there is a sense that one of our highest societal values now is tolerance, right? Tolerance is the highest value, and one of the highest values. And I think that's a good thing. But I also think that you can tolerantly and lovingly disagree. Um, and, and so again, so if you even start to say, now I, I believe, you know, I, I believe in Jesus. I believe he's the only way. You know, I, I follow Jesus, whatever these claims are. You know, you are going to get, some people are just going to be, that's arrogant. That, that's not okay. And so some of it is, uh, you know, some of it can be on their aspect of, of tolerance that, you know, they see that as an arrogant claim. But I think what Angela pointed out earlier is the way we go about it. So some of these solutions that I think we need to move towards getting out of completely being arrogant. We need to have a basic understanding of other beliefs. In this room, we don't have that. You know, it doesn't take long. I mean, as crazy as it sounds, Wikipedia is not a bad resource. I mean, it really is a bad excuse to not know general things about other religions. There really isn't any excuse for it, to be honest. It takes, you could do one hour for a day for a week, and you could have a general uh, understanding of five to ten religions, just general stuff. Okay, so I mean, and, and then of course, I would hope that we could go deeper. I would hope that as you meet people, as you actually get anything, as you would actually have conversations and talk to them, you might even get deeper knowledges. But to not have a basic understanding is not okay. And so I think that speaks to every single person in this room. Two, we need to train our churches in these religions. Um, I think there needs to be more formal training, more discussion different things like these are the things that Dan Kimball has, has given off, so I definitely take from them and agree with, with his solutions. And then we need to be able to explain why not all paths lead to God. I think this is as you build a relationship, as you get past saying arrogant, mean, not listening to other people type of claims, as you actually build friendships, we do need to be able to say, well, you know, Hinduism has a way of many gods, Islam says, you know, Jesus wasn't God and is a prophet, and we say that Jesus is God, right? The only God. So I would say that there are three different paths, right? And so to me, logically speaking, I, I don't see how all those paths lead to the same thing. So, I mean, and this is very brief and, and purposely so, but I think, I think this makes sense. Um, I think it makes sense that if you have one religion claiming all, you know, many gods, one with one God, or a few with one God, and some with no God, I don't see how all those lead to the same thing, just, just logically speaking, rationally. But the thing is, one, it's how you do that. It's how you talk to people. It's how you even build a relationship to get to the point where you can sit down and talk and that people would listen and that you would listen to them. Yeah. Um, when I think of Christianity, I think of it as a, as a means of how God has reached out to us. Mm -hmm. I would agree with Justin Martyr where, where he said something to the extent of how this fragments of truth just dispersed. And so I kind of see it, my viewpoint is that I feel like God has just revealed God's self through Christ fully. However, I think there's been, there's been explosions of little fragments dispersed. And with that, could somebody find Jesus through Buddhism? I would say yes, because yeah. all truth points to Christ, right? I, I agree in the idea of, of shards of truth, but we have to watch out. I don't know. I think the Bible is one that Christ is centric. That, that is the one thing. And so there may be religious backgrounds that somehow find a way, but I think it's, it's gray and difficult. And I just, I don't know. I definitely have that type of... That. I wouldn't say every religion is right. However, I think I, I'm, I'm just more inclusive about mm -hmm. how I view religion. And I don't want to um, box it in. Because the, the way we have westernized Jesus, well, this might sound really heretical, sometimes we've really westernized Jesus. Absolutely. Like I said, all truth leads to Christ. I mean, if right. we really believe that, if we believe Jesus is the only way, then truth should point to Christ. So, hence, the, the, the truth in Buddhism the, should it not point to Christ. Does it not right. point to Christ? I don't know. I mean, right. It's a tough, it's a deep question. It's just, it's tough, especially with you know, where, you know, Islam's going to say Jesus is not God, like, explicitly. You know, to me, where I'm, I'm sitting there going, there, there may be many 
good truthful aspects because I mean you know they're praying uh, they love God you know these these things we pointed out these general things that I completely agree with and yet something that goes directly against I'm like Ew, I don't know Phil I think that yeah I agree with you and like the, the idea that there's truth in other religions and other places if we were looking for truth we shouldn't be saying well go to these other things because they have some truth but instead as Christians we need to realize hey truth is from Christ but we can't deny and say, no, we ignore everything else that exists outside of our bubble because none of it can be true. And I would, I would say that as long, as well as not just other religions, but just things in the world, secular things that have good truth there, but right. we can't block out everything else and just ignore it, which I think is part Right, and we have scripture to be able to, to test things against, and we have all kinds of, yeah. I think it's important, too. The terms pluralism and, and relativism aren't interchangeable. Pluralism is the basic recognition that there are other belief structures. Relativism has to do with whether or not you view truth, truth in as interchangeable. Right. And so, you know, we, 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 the fact that we live in a pluralistic world is truth. That's, and that has nothing to do with like, the question of ultimate truth or truth, you know, as right. it's found in one particular religious perspective or secular perspective, whatever. Relativism is a different claim. Yeah. Something I just found in like dealing with different religions is to understand that Satan is the father of lies and that he can make something look true that isn't necessarily true. And he can make something look good that isn't necessarily good, right? Yeah, they could say that they their laws are like to love one another and to, you know, all these different things. But when you get into the religion it's not at all, you know? I found that a lot with that the truth looks true, but then you delve more into it, and it's not really true. I think we also have, just, just like we love to say, right, here's a great Christian claim is, don't look at the Christian, look at Jesus, right? Look at the scripture. And so in the same sense, I think there's some validity to that in both, because I think we have to live out the scriptures if we're not, we're, <laughs> we're totally blowing it. But we try to point people to this ideal, to this person of Jesus that we seem to fall short of. And I think some of the, in, in the same way, you can't look at, you know, the Islam who, you know, okay, they're beating women and, and not carrying out some of the ideals they, they proclaim, correct? But so are we, right? And, and so at least those texts, th these ideals are there, like the love, the peace, the joy. And I think, I think their conception of love is, is similar. Yeah, John. But I think just to add to what you're saying, I think Abby's point is so insightful because when we're invited to look at other religions and we don't see that they're practicing or that it's really what they present it to be, we say, oh, you see, it's all a lie. But when we flip that around, that's exactly what's happening to non-Christians. Because we sell them a bill of goods about what it's supposed to be. And then when they come in and actually check it out, it's not that. And the reason is because we forgive ourselves too easily, I think. <laughs> we believe internally that it really is true. But none of us are living it out because maybe we're practicing so much grace on ourselves. <laughs> they don't see it. And then they do exactly what Abby would do if she looked at another religion. They look at us and go, you see, it's all lies. So, I mean, it's so insightful because we see other religions that way, exactly the way that non-Christians see us. That's good. Last thought. That's a pretty good one to end on. Okay, what I want to do, just this last one, is to put up my last statements on arrogance. Basically, if I had to give a thesis on arrogance, there's absolutely no place for it in Christianity. These scriptures really show that. So humility. He has shown you, O humanity, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. Micah 6, 8. Um, Colossians 3. Well, or no, it is 12. Um, Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Jesus says this as kind of a blanket statement. Sitting down, Jesus called the twelve and said, If anyone wants to be first, he must be the very last and the servant of all. This theme of humility, I could have picked at least 50 other verses. <laughs> I mean, this is streaming throughout the scriptures that God is near to the humble at heart and far from the proud and arrogant. I do believe we can make exclusive claims. I do believe, just, just like other religions, act when you get into them, are doing the same. Christianity definitely takes a bad rap for being the big bully. But I think it's because we live that way. I think it's because we've lived in a way that domineers people, that tries to say we are the way and you will believe what we say, and does a lot of hateful things that are not clothed in humility at all. 
Humility is the way we should be approaching all friendships, all people, all relationships, especially with God. And so these sort of things should cause us to consider when you are talking to somebody from a different religion. What is your state of heart? It's a state of heart internal, and it comes out very quickly. Um, it's, it's, it, it takes about five seconds to know when someone doesn't really want to have a conversation, doesn't really want to hear the other, and is acting arrogantly or dogmatically or domineering. Any last thoughts on this? You know, I, I can't stand it, and it's been done to me. And they come to me, and they're just trying to save me. I, I can feel the urgency, which I commend, but there's like a stretch, you know? As if all of whatever is hanging on this moment. And I used to be like that, so I can talk from experience, because I felt like it's our duty. It's our duty to tell everyone about God's love, but it was stressful. And then it just dawned on me that I'm not the Savior. <laughs> I'm not Jesus, that I'm not doing any saving, that whatever I'm experiencing with Christ is my own personal thing, and right. it should seep out. And if it's not, then that's my own issue with God. Right. So I, I want to encourage people here, there is a sense of urgency that we should be God's love. Yeah. And I think we come from, because the difference between now and 300 years ago is most people in this nation, and, and in Europe as well, when you decided to speak from the scriptures and says God says this and God says this, you know, people were at the same, sitting there reading the same scriptures, acknowledging the same God, you know, where, where they had a, it was okay to speak that way because everyone was on the same page. And America is not that way anymore. Everyone doesn't look at the scriptures and say, this is God's word. I will listen. You know, I, I want to know what God, you know, has to say from here and calling people back into faith because of that um, equal knowledge. Paul when he goes to the Greeks, right, the Areopagus, does not scream scriptures at them because they didn't have an understanding of the Jewish scriptures. They didn't believe it. And so he sees this unknown God and relates it because of that culture. And he makes some very exclusive claims, but he relates it in a way that is, is from their understanding. It's no reason to go screaming the scriptures at somebody who says, but I don't believe in Jesus. It's like, ooh, we got a different starting point, right? So that's what we need to remember. And we have a history from that because, yes, there has been a large Christian population, and there still is. Okay, we're going to turn to fundamentalism because it's similar in a lot of ways. So scary words in our culture, fundamentalists and taking the Bible literally. Those usually, you know, have you ever had that person who asks, do you take the Bible literally? And it's like, oh, man, they are setting me up for a, a fun answer because <laughs> I'm not sure they really want to know. Or, you know, it's just those are some of the things. So some of the words that non-Christians use to describe fundamentalists are restrictive, destructive, crippling, narrow belief system, dangerous, dark age dogma, that's a good one, fanatic, and anti-intellectual. Um, this is the claim of many. So here are the five fundamentals. So what does this even come from? Where do we even get fundamentalism from? So in 1910, you have a group, John was saying that it might have even originated at Biola, that has the five <laughs> um, that has the five fundamentals listed, and so here they are. So it's the verbal inspiration, which meant then inerrancy of Scripture. Two is the divinity of Jesus Christ. Three is the virgin birth of Christ. Four is substitutionary atonement of Christ. Five is the bodily resurrection of Christ and his future return. This was the five fundamentals. Here it is. These are our five fundamentals. What are what are some strengths? What are some weaknesses here? Because I want to critique this as well. Ben. Yeah. Uh, so substitutionary atonement means that Jesus takes the place. He substitute basically. So the substitutionary is our our badness is substitute for his perfection. So he substitute, and that's how we receive our atonement. Does that make sense? That's the watered down, quick version. There's no mention of grace in this. Good. So there's no mention of grace. Phil. Where the these five principles saying these are the only things that we know are true. To these are just the five fundamentals. I wouldn't say that they are only thing, but this was the bedrock, non-negotiable. This is the fun. If you are Christian, you believe in this. And if you don't, let's say, you know, I'm shaky on number three. I don't really think Jesus was, was born a virgin. Let's just say you're saying that. They, as I say, they say, well, you are not, you are not, sorry, born of a virgin. Sorry. Um, you are not, um, you are not Christian. You know, that, that might be the response to someone saying, okay, I'm trying not to put words in their mouth. Phil, it might be thought this way. You notice two, three, four, and five flow from one. 
So, I mean, you can kind of see, okay. you know, when you start kind of taking these things apart and other conversations, one is like, boom, don't mess with the text. Right. So, I mean, yeah, and if, if people want to go into further, Jeremy is a really good person to talk to. And this is definitely a response to liberalism, and there isn't enough time to really go into what they were responding to and why. The one critique I have about this is that, as you can see, so you have the inerrancy, as Jeremy talked about, and the rest flow from that. Number two through five all deal with Christ, right? So there's a very, very high Christology. But what happened to Father and what happened to Spirit and what happened to God's love? So the doctrine of God is very weak on this, right? You know, I mean, like, you have no assent to what is God's nature? Is he evil? Is he good? To what level? You know, all those sort of questions, they're just not really there. And that might be okay because they said these are just five fundamentals. And at the same time, I would say it's a little weak. You know, there isn't, we don't get a full picture of, of what God, there's no trinity. You know, these sort of things that, that we claim. So from this basic five, there are other doctrines that are added into these. And they're dictated as much by the culture as scripture. Things like specific end times view, six-day literal creation, dress codes, music, movies, methods of baptism, tattoos are good or bad, alcohol usage. There becomes a fundamentalist subculture. So it started with these five. And yeah, I mean, originally I guess these are five fundamentalists. At most evangelical churches, you're going to get those. I mean, it's, it's kind of that. And maybe it's not as explicitly stated, but usually it is. Like I said, I, I don't think it's a full theology, right? It's kind of weak as far as... And it's a response to a movement. And it's a response to a movement. I totally understand that as a response right. to a movement in that context. Like, but now we've added all these other things that have messed it up and there's right. a culture. Now I just kind of reject the idea of a list altogether. But. Yeah, but so there is this shaping, you know, where now this fundamentalist camp, if, you, if you're a fundamental, you know, like if you're in the fundamentalist camp, like things like six-day literal creation has been tacked on is now... This is kind of an unspoken, you, you just wouldn't be called a fundamentalist if you said, well, it might not be six days. They'd be like, you're not in our camp, you know, that sort of thing. So, so there's been a growth into this, and there have been things that are added on. Yeah, AJ? Yeah, um, I think also the trouble with, at least with that list of the, of the five fundamentalists, is that as, a, as Western civilization, we, we want things, you know, quick and easy, and we always try to put God or religion in a box mm -hmm. and say, this is what religion is. These are the five things. And... And I think to, to say that there's only, not only five, but that these five fundamental right. things are what make us up, it, it's a misrepresentation. Of Here's the other thing I would want to push back into, though. Have you ever read, you know, gone to a church website, read their theology where they have 47 points to their theology? Have you ever read through 47 points of theology? There is a back and forth in the sense that there are some things worth saying, you know, th this is what we, we really, you know, this is what we say, and, and this is what we're going to hold on to. And yeah, we're going to let a lot of gray. The thing is they added on to other things, right? Now, maybe you could say there could be a, a redeeming thing here where there's a lot of gray that could be here, right? And that could allow for a lot of in inclusiveness. It could allow for it. Now, they didn't go that way, but it could allow for, hey, like maybe, you know, there isn't a specific end times view here, right? There isn't a, a six-day alert. So in that way, it could be very inclusive. So you see, and ultimately you do have to define a theology of a church. You can't just, we got a church and just come. <laughs> you know, that you, at least most churches don't do that. So, I mean, you're pushing history. John, did you have something? Yeah, I mean, that would be great if you had, like, I don't know if they have to be these five points. Five points and then you made a rule, like rule six was, and if you believe in the first five, we'll never fight with you or we'll never split from you and you'll all, we'll all be one church together. That actually would be kind of cool because I think it's when they started adding those other things that, they realized that, wait a minute, that means it'd have to be friends or fellowship with people that they didn't agree with on all those other things. Right. So don't be too harsh on the five. <laughs> yeah, Phil. Uh, so there's still a question about the thing, like, is fundamentalism or this fundamental ideas, is this like a denomination? Or is it then that, like, some denominations favor it more than others? It's a difficult term in the sense, one, there are just some culture, you know, like I said, when somebody asks, are you a fundamentalist? That is loaded with each person's individual meaning. Now, I would say, one, this is a response to liberalism, as we said. It's going to be in all different branches. It's not a, we are the fundamentalist, you know, like, it's not like I'm Protestant or I'm Catholic or I'm fundamentalist, you know, like, it's not like that. It's in everything. There could be people who would claim, hey, I'm, I'm a fundamentalist and I go to the Methodist church or I'm a fundamentalist and I go to, the, you know, you may not, you may have some, so it's a real malleable, it's tough to define. It's tough to define. And Dan Kimball's point, I want to take it back to that, is the fact that he argues we can have fundamental beliefs and not be fundamentalists, right? Every one of us in this room 
pretty much everyone in, yeah, everyone in the world have fundamental beliefs to how they see the world and how they respond to people, to God, to not God, to, to whatever, right? They have fundamental things that they say, this is what I believe. That's okay. We'd be pretty silly if we didn't. We'd just be a floating, I don't know. Like, <laughs> it's good that you have fundamental beliefs. But that doesn't make you need to be a fundamentalist where you add on to other things. It's just, yeah, let's leave it at that. Um, so taking the Bible literally with a question mark because this is the other one. Are you a person who takes the Bible literally? So I don't really want to get into inerrancy and infallibility for too long. I think it's actually, it's actually a series that we do want to do, actually. I don't want to do it injustice by talking about it for 35 seconds and saying this is what inerrancy and infallibility is. But there are other, back to that first fundamentals, there are other ways of saying that every single thing in Scripture is perfectly coherent in the sense that, you know, there are different times where Scripture even quotes Scripture differently. So let's, you know, Moses, or Paul will quote Moses or, or the Old Testament, um, and he will change certain things, right, to fit it to his context. And so some people sit there and say, well, you know, there's got to be some reasoning or there's got to be some this or that. And if it's not absolutely perfect, if he changes one word, then, then it's wrong. Or, or there's this some inherent system where every little detail has to be absolutely perfect. Or else it's, you know, God's scripture falls down like a, a mountain crumbling and we can't believe anything. How do the fundamentalists respond to, like, arguments like that? Do they say, no, it doesn't exist? I don't know. Paul doesn't change... That's deep because people are going to respond differently. Like there isn't like a coherent, this is how we respond to that. This is one of those things where, again, a lot of fundamentalists, if, if you say, hey, I believe in infallibility. Now I'm going to define infallibility very quickly. I would say infallibility is anything that has, pertains to, to salvation and to doctrinal manners is perfect. Like Christian faith and practice can perfectly be derived from anything from scripture. So, so when Jesus says to love your neighbor as yourself, that notion, that, that doctrine, that teaching is totally flawless and good. That would be how I would say that. Whereas you may have, you know, someone may not have lived 777 years. Okay? I'm just going to leave it at that. And we will do a series on this. So I just want to say there are other ways of looking at Scripture that move past this. The other thing that's even more important is the value and importance of interpretation. And Jeremy has actually talked a lot about this just randomly at different times. Guess what? First of all, any text, anything that's written has to be t interpreted. That's first. Any story, any anything, it has to be interpreted. Two is that every person brings something to the text. Every person brings experience and culture and history and people and time and place and all these things that absolutely directly affect how you read about Jesus. So the whole idea is, well, that's your interpretation or that's an interpretation of Scripture as opposed to not interpreting Scripture. It's not possible to not do that. Okay, so that's something we also need to do. And the last thing is genre identification. So are these men literally, when Jesus says, I am the bread of life, he who comes to me will never go hungry, and he who believes in me will never be thirsty, is Jesus a bread? Is he a piece of bread? Does he, you know, like, yeah. <laughs> Angela says yes. So why, no. Um, I tell you the truth, I am the gate for the sheep. So are people simply sheep and Jesus simply a gate? No, these are metaphor, you know, these, are, these have implications. If, you're, you know, if your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. Is anybody, do you really think Jesus is saying, I mean, maybe some people do. Maybe some people actually think you should gouge it out. Well, we either got a lot of non-practicing Christians because we should all be blind right now, or maybe he doesn't mean that. He is trying to explain the depth of sin and the, the necessary measures we need to take to get rid of it at times, right? Genre identification is extremely, extremely important to how we read the scriptures. Whether it's poetry, whether it's narrative, whether it's an epic, you know, whatever the, the aspect of scripture is, that dictates the lessons, the morals, the, the teaching, the, the value of, of what it is, okay? Some stuff. So here's a classic thing. The Bible says it, I believe it, that settles it. The thing I really do not like about this at all, one, it's based on a single verse. Two, and even more importantly, that's a conversation ender. You want to end a conversation, spit out a verse, say the Bible says it, I believe it, that settles it, and end your conversation. Good. Good job. You have been arrogant, you have ended a conversation, and you're going to be claimed as fundamentalist. This is the type of saying, I really... Now, we can say the Bible you know, describes th this so-and-so, and I believe it because I believe in the authority of Scripture, and go through this thing. But can we please begin to have conversations? That's the biggest point in this is the fact that you can hold to fundamentals. 
But one, we need to learn it for ourselves, why we believe what we believe, then be able to articulate it and actually have a conversation and actually maybe even listen to somebody why they don't think that. That is the point I'm trying to hammer home here is something like this just, it ends the conversation. And at some point, you may sit there and get to the point where you say, well, I believe in the authority of scripture. The other person doesn't. And maybe that is the end of your conversation. And that's okay too. You know, it's okay to say, you know, this is an authoritative thing in my life and it's not in yours. And, and you know, that might be the difference for our disagreement here. But we can, I, I believe that we can do that humbly, lovingly, and in a conversation. Yeah, Monique. I think fundamentalism is more um, devastating to the church itself than it is to like having conversations with other people. Because I feel like a lot of Christians waste a lot of time trying to, we're trying to save each other. Good. We need to just kind of put that on the wayside. There are some, certain things that aren't important. The number of days that God created the earth mm -hmm. is unimportant. Like, I'll push back. Well, maybe Ben's going to push back. Yeah. Like, that is important. And that's a problem fundamentalism. I believe in a literal six-day creation, and you don't. But why like, is that something that's going to discredit my salvation? Because my entire belief system is based on the fact that the Bible can be taken literally word for word. As is, and if you disagree with that, then but what else? fundamentalists don't catch out their eyes, so they clearly don't take everything word for word. They're picking out certain parts of Scripture that benefit them for God knows whatever reason they have, and like... Drive that home and say this is what a real Christian is. But that's where, if I was a fundamentalist, I would have a problem. Jeremy. There are other right. traditions that value, they don't value the scriptures less. You know, just here, you're just dealing with, like, you know, scriptures and with the, with the one perspective that is just the Bible. Right, I mean, Wesley, you know, Wesley, the Wesleyan quadrilateral is a four-part view of truth, that it comes from scripture, reason, experience, and tradition. And they're not all balanced. They still put scripture as, you know, this is still the highest authority. But you can't even understand scripture without reason. God obviously spoke to people before it was written. So there's experience before scripture. And then tradition is important. When we decide to change something that's been done for a thousand years or 1,500 years, we got to at least think about it, right? You can't just write it off. Oh, those non-Christians who have been doing this for 1,500 years, they've been having it wrong. You know, that's, that's my very 30-second <laughs> blip on the Wesleyan quadrilateral. But, but, but that's important to know, that other people don't just say Scripture is the only thing. That's an important thought that good, loving Christians believe that. The APU is found. The school I'm at right now is Wesleyan quadrilateral. Here's, here's what I think. And we can continue talking about this afterwards because this is, this is extremely important, I think, because I think, there are a lot of, I think there are a lot of destructive conversations between Christians. I would agree with that. I also agree that it is important to one, you know, the, these things called doctrine is, is how we view God and how we view the world. And so I do think they're important and it's important for us to converse with each other. Okay, so here are some solutions. We need to know basic Bible study methods. We need to understand genre. We need to understand some of those things. And we do need to have humility with the way we read the scriptures. Again, recognizing interpretation, recognizing what we bring to the text. We also need to be careful not to teach our opinion as what God says. Now notice how I said teach our opinion. I think we can say certain things that this is what God says, especially let's say when we quote Jesus. If we say that Jesus is God, I think we can maybe say the term, well, you know, Jesus said or God says it. But watch out. And really, again, remember interpretation. Just be careful when you say God says. Um, be very careful. Be very hesitant and humble about saying, you know, what's your opinion? You know, especially with things like tattoos or dress codes. You know, some of those things we talked about that come in from the fundamentalist perspective where it's God says, you know, there's no skirts or, you know, something like that where it's like, whoa, now we have moved into utter opinion and cultural influence and are then claiming that God says this. So let's be really hesitant to that. Um, again, we need to have fundamental beliefs without being fundamentalists. Um, we need to be prepared for a new wave of questions. This is kind of why we did the survey also. He really makes a point like, if you guys are actually making friendships with people who don't know the Lord, guess what? You're going to be getting difficult questions, really difficult, at, and at a younger age. When you guys are parents, look for your 7 and 10-year-olds <laughs> to start asking you some deep, difficult questions that aren't going to be 30-second answers. And those, again, should take us back to Scripture, should take us back to learning, should take us back to humility. We need to use the Bible with love. That's one of the biggest things is, and I put this up here, if I speak in tongues of men and angels but have not love, 
I'm only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. Read 1 Corinthians 13. It's supposed to clothe everything we do is love and humility. I've, I, you know, as Angela said, you know, she used to do those. I did too. I have had numerous conversations that I seriously sit there and say, I can't believe I went that route. I can't believe I went that bashing, you know, over the head type stuff where I have a battle with being a total people pleaser. So I have to balance that on the other side is, is changing everything around to make sure this person still likes me at the end of the conversation. I don't think that's right either. But we do need to clothe everything in love and care and, and listening. And I think one of the best, especially in our culture today, is why don't you actually start listening to their beliefs first? Why don't you actually, and actually care. That, that's not a, you do the fake, oh, I'll listen to you, then I'll get my point across. No, no, actually listen and actually care. Okay. Um, let me close this in prayer. Father, um, we have a lot to learn. Um, we have a lot to figure out, God. And so I pray that people would just continue to process what I've said. I pray that I would continue to process what I've said and, um, God, what you have taught me. Father, I pray that you would teach us to be humble, loving people who follow you. Um, God, there is a tension. We, we do hold on to these truths that your scripture is good and holy and, and, it, and it reveals yourself and it is truthful. God, and so there is a sense that we believe that, Jesus, you are the way, the truth, and the life and, and that we can affirm that and, and hold on to that. God, I pray, though, that we would listen to others. I pray that we would care deeply about fellow believers with differences of theology, of, of people who are not believers and, and who, or, or believe in another system. God, I just pray that we would have good conversations, Lord. I pray that we would become ambassadors that are loving and that do act and live out your word. So we thank you, and we pray that you would be blessing our conversations and, and transforming, transforming us into your son, Jesus. In your name we pray, amen.